We're going to get into the book of Galatians today. We've been studying through the book of Galatians for about, uh, about 29 weeks now, actually. It's kind of where we're at. And uh, the past eight weeks, we've actually spent just looking at a little section, one word at, at, a, at a time each week, what it's typically called the fruit of the Spirit. What I want to do, basically, as we jump into this, is kind of preface all this, is to really say that Jesus is about changing people's lives. I mean, at the end of the day, what Jesus really, truly wants to do is change people's lives. It's not God's intention to bring people into religion. It's not God's intention to just somehow bring people together, rope them together, throw a bunch of rules and restrictions and regulations upon them, try to clean up their lives, try to encourage them by as best efforts as they can to just make them look good and send them back into the world. God's desire is actually to change people's lives. And the way that God does that is by actually changing a person's heart. What religion does is religion basically superimposes rules and restrictions and regulations upon us and says, if you want to be a better person, if you want to be good in life, if you want to succeed, if you want to take care of some of the habits that you have that are bad or some of the addictions that you find yourself bound to or some of the ways by which you live that are destructive, if you want to change those, what you need to do is follow the rules that are in this book or go to this conference or somehow have this uh, ethereal experience or somehow find some sort of guru or teacher who's more advanced than you are and subject yourself to them, live according to the rules and principles that they have, and then you'll be better. That's what religion does. Christianity works radically different. What Christianity does, it actually takes out the heart that's not working and changes you. Religion would be more akin to walking up to a corpse and putting lots of makeup on it. That's what religion does. It walks up to a corpse, puts up a lot of makeup on it. It may make it look a little bit better than what it had been before. You can put perfume on it so the funk's gone, but it's still at the end of the day is a corpse. It's dead. And if you're really honest with yourself, it's very repugnant. There's nothing good or pleasant about a corpse, even if it has makeup on it. What Christianity does, what the gospel does, is it actually takes the heart that's dead and puts a new heart in it. It gives new life to this corpse that's laying there on a table. And as a result of new life coming into that corpse, that dead funk of funky smell that is attributed to a dead body will naturally go away, as well as of the lack of pigmentation in the skin will come back because when you put a new heart in a corpse, Life happens. Person comes back to life. Things begin to change. A person is transformed. That's what the gospel does. All religion can do is make you feel bad for not working hard enough to somehow become better, to change yourself, to do better. Jesus, like I said, is about changing people's lives. That's what you guys saw in the video. That's what baptism's about. That's why, for me, baptism never gets old because I love seeing people's lives change and transformed by the gospel. It's amazing. It's the best part of my job. I love doing it, and I love seeing people transform, because that's what Jesus wants to do. So what we're going to look at today as we kind of move into the book of Galatians, I want to recap very quickly what we've looked at up until this point. For some of you, this will be by way of review. For maybe others of you, this will be all brand new, so I want to make sure that you're up to speed. In short, Paul the Apostle was a man that was changed by Jesus. Paul went from being a guy who persecuted the church because that was where his heart was at. He hated Christianity. He hated Jesus. He hated what it represented. And yet God changed him. And as a result of being changed, Paul went from persecuting the church to actually planting churches. That's how much God changes people. So the churches that Paul planted in a particular region called Galatia were specially full of affection to Paul. He loved these people. Paul, because he was a missionary, he went around planting churches. He wouldn't stay in areas for very long. So Paul would leave after he planted churches. And when Paul left the region of Galatia, there's a group of people that came into the church. They claimed to be teachers. They claimed to be moralist leaders. They claimed to be pastors and prophets and whatnot that came in. And they tried to basically change the church from what Paul had originally planted it in. These people started out loving Jesus. Their lives were changed. They fell in love with each other because that's what the gospel does. It changes your heart. So therefore, the things that you used to once hate, now you love. Vice versa. The things you used to love, i.e. sin, 
maybe even destructive patterns of life, maybe even certain vices that are just evil, uh, addictions that you even had, some sort of love-hate relationship, because that's what every addiction is. There's always a love-hate relationship with every addiction. On the one hand, you love the high if it's drugs. What you hate is the valley you find yourself with alcoholism. You love getting drunk. What you hate is the hangover. If you're addicted to sex or you're a pervert, what you love is the sexual high, the euphoria that you find. But what you hate is the feeling of being defiled. You hate that. It's a love-hate relationship. Every addiction has it. So what had happened with these people was they were transformed by the gospel. God gave them a new heart. The things that they used to hate, they now love, which is God. The things they used to love, they now hate and despise, which is sin. They were nude people. These people that came in from the outside said, that's not enough. You have Jesus. That's great. It's a good place to begin. But what you need to know is you need to go further than Jesus. You need to be radical people. You need to be sold out. You need to act like Gus. Because every person that comes in with their own description as to what radical is or sold out is or zealous is, they oftentimes have their own laundry list of do's and don'ts that you need to subscribe to. For them, it was you need to subscribe to the law. You need to do what the law tells you to do. First and foremost, preeminently, if you really want to be sold out for God, you've got to be circumcised. So they would ask for the men to line up to be circumcised. Some of the men would be circumcised. If you have no idea what that is, look it up in a dictionary online. It'll describe it to you. It's not pleasant, especially if you're over eight days old. You don't want to be circumcised. All right? Um, and the reality is, this is the way the church was operating. So they went from falling in love with Jesus, finding freedom and liberty from the sin and from the religious uh, lifestyle that they had come to be a part of. And they found and they discovered the freedom and the joy that comes through Jesus. Now, after these guys came into the church, they began to realize that joy was now going away. They found themselves arguing with each other. They became very jealous against each other because people that had been circumcised. Now we're looking at people that hadn't been circumcised and they're getting bummed because they're looking at it and saying, you said you, we were going to be circumcised together, but you didn't get circumcised. I endured the pain and you pulled out last minute. What are you doing? And the reality is there was a sense of uh, indignity that people would have towards each other. They would get frustrated. They would judge each other. It was a church that went from celebrating joy in Jesus to a church that now is all consumed with rules, righteousness, regulations, who's doing what, how are they doing it, what type of works and group of works and ideas are they living according to and subscribing. And it was a church that was on the brink of being destroyed by consuming itself or destroying itself. So Paul writes this letter saying, look, you guys started out with Jesus. What happened? You walked away from Jesus. So Paul is actually calling them back to Jesus. This is where the church needs to constantly keep its mind fixed and its heart fixed is on Jesus. It's one of the reasons why movements can start out being profound and powerful, but somewhere along the line, they pull away from Jesus, and they become more about the structure, more about the institution, more about the tribe, more about the rules and the regulations or the distinctives that make one part of that group, and somewhere Jesus gets placed into the margins or the footnote of everything. So Paul's writing to them saying, what about Jesus? You guys lost Jesus. And as a result of losing Jesus, it's not just that you know, you're, you're shifting or changing in your church. Paul's main concern about why he's writing to them about making sure you don't forget Jesus is because if you walk away from Jesus, you, you're not just walking away from Jesus, you're actually walking into a new form of bondage, a new form of slavery. Let me try to put it to you this way. If you want to try to understand Christianity in the most simplistic terms, it's this. Sin equals slavery, oppression, bondage. Salvation equals freedom. That's it. In the most simplistic terms, sin leads to slavery, oppression. You see that motif used all throughout the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Jesus would say it this way. Those who sin actually become slaves to sin. But Jesus then would go on to say that the Son of Man came to set people free. Jesus' purpose in salvation is not just to save you for one day when you go to heaven. It may not be, it's not less than that, but it's far more than that. That he came to actually set you free. 
So what was happening with this Galatian group of people is they were set free from sin and from the paganism that sort of surrounded the culture, but now they were actually in danger of going back into a new form of religion, a new form of slavery, a slavery to rules, a slavery to legalism, a slavery to laws. And Paul's saying, you guys are actually not just, you're walking away from Jesus. He set you free. I'm going to read you guys a handful of scriptures in the book of Galatians chapter 5, hopefully as a recap. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read some selected scriptures. Let's get started. Verse 1 says this, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So again, his whole point is that Jesus set you free. Why would you go back into another form of slavery? And that idea of slavery is going to become more apparent in a second because Paul has in mind what type of slavery they're actually in danger of falling to. What you need to understand, the slavery that Paul's concerned about them falling into is not sin as we would oftentimes define sin. It's not like he's, Paul's not saying, look, I'm very concerned that you guys are going to go back to being crack addicts. I'm very concerned that you guys are going back to being perverts. It's not his concern. His actual concern is very much so along the lines, I'm concerned that you guys are falling back into religion. This, is really, this should shock some of us. Because for some of us, the real vice that we ought to look out for is not falling into straight up immoral type actions of sin. It's falling back into some form of religion. That's what ought to shock us. It goes on to say in verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So this becomes clear. Circumcision is the preeminent issue that Paul's concerned about. Paul's concerned that these people are saying for you to be made right with God, you need Jesus plus circumcision. You need Jesus plus doing the laws, rules, and regulations that Moses gave. So if you really want to show your serious commitment to God, you've got to follow Jesus but you've got to follow Jesus through this vehicle of being circumcised, through the vehicle of the Mosaic covenantal law. So Paul's saying, again, very clearly, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you, to you in verse 7. He says, you were running well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? So the idea of obeying the truth, what you need to understand is in Paul's mind, obedience to truth is not so much obedience to propositional concepts or propositions. All right? It's not less than that, but it's far more than that. When Paul says, who's hindered you from obeying the truth, Paul's saying truth is not just simply propositions. Truth is a person. When Christianity gets reduced to creeds, and it's just mere propositions, and what you've got to do for Jesus, and how you've got to live, and how you act, and somehow Jesus, who Christianity is meant to embody, gets again placed in the margins, you're in danger of falling prey to some sort of religion. It's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. Verse 13 says this. If you were called to freedom, he says, for if you were called, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And the whole of the law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you be not consumed by one another. So obviously the issue is that these people were biting consuming each other. So therefore, Paul's writing saying, you shouldn't be doing this because this is what's happening as you're destroying yourself. Verse 16, he says, but I say. And whenever you see Jesus say, but I say, or Paul say, but I say, what he's actually doing is he's basically combating the, the popular concept that's floating around in that day. If it was just something that was no big deal, he would say, hey, I want to tell you something. But here's what Paul's saying, but I say to you, in other words, you've heard it said otherwise, but I say to you, Jesus is going to say, you guys heard it taught this way, but I'm telling you, this is how it should be done. This is what Paul's doing. He says, but I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, let me say this real quick. What Paul is trying to do is that in that day, you had a bunch of religious people that were looking at these young Christians, young believers that had come to Christ. And what they're saying is that, look, Paul preached grace, that God accepted you, God loved you on the basis of free grace. Now, the big question, big concern that has oftentimes been in the minds of a lot of churches throughout history is, okay, here's the deal. If you tell somebody God accepts you on the basis of free grace alone, can that not now become an opportunity whereby you abuse that and go get into sin? Is that possible? 
Okay, so let's put it another way. Let's say that you're in prison. You get out of prison. You've been in for 10 years. You get out of prison. Is it possible for you to, once you're out of prison, to go commit a crime because you don't have any cash in your pocket, so you go rob a teller, you take money from them, you shoot them, you kill them, for you to actually do something that can get you back into prison again? Is it possible? Of course it is. Of course it is. Freedom can be abused, right? So here's the problem. The religious leaders of the day in the Galatian group we're saying, we don't want a freedom that can be abused. So here's what we will do is we will put up our rules and restrictions around freedom to, to strengthen it so that it can't be abused. In other words, we're here to help make certain you don't sin. Here's what Paul's saying. That doesn't work. That's just another bondage. Paul says, but you've heard it said, and I think if you can maybe finish the thought, Paul's saying, you've heard it said, you need the religious leaders and the rules and regulations and the obedience to the Mosaic Covenant of law in order to be a complete Christian. Okay, we've got different rules in our modern day. Our modern day is like, you need Jesus and you need to fast at least once a week and then you'll be a strong Christian. You need Jesus and you need to go to our five prayer meetings every morning at 4.30 in the morning in order to be a good Christian. You need Jesus and you need to go down to Farmer's Market and preach the gospel just like us every single Thursday night. You need Jesus and you need to have a daily devotional life. You need Jesus and you need to write in your journal. You need Jesus and you need to go to church every single Sunday. You need Jesus and you need to tithe. Get the idea? Have you been to that? That's what they're saying. Because if you don't read your Bible every day, if you don't pray every day the way we tell you to pray, if you don't show up to prayer meetings the way we tell you to show up to prayer meetings, if you don't do all these things that we tell you to do, you know what will happen? You're in danger of sinning. Here's what Paul's saying. All that is is another yoke of oppression that you're straightjacketing yourself into. Paul's saying, but I say to you, walk according to the Spirit. The Spirit has actually done something in your life to change your heart. But religious people, for them, it's not enough. They want to see fast results. They want to exercise control over you. And Paul's saying, Jesus set you free from religion. Jesus set you free from oppressors. Jesus set you free from sin, who is ultimately the tool from the devil to oppress you. He set you free from all these oppressors so that now you know who governs your heart, Jesus is going to say? The Holy Spirit. You know who the Holy Spirit loves? He loves me. You know who I love? I love the Father. So Paul's saying, you need to walk in the Spirit because the Spirit has passions. He actually uses the word epithumia. It can be translated lust. He's going to use that exact same word to describe the flesh also has lusts. The flesh lusts against the spirit. And the flesh lusts for things in this world that are sensual. And he gives this description of all these things in the world. But Paul's going to say the spirit also has lusts. You know what the spirit lusts after? Jesus. That's all the spirit wants. You know the spirit's desire is singular? You know that? He doesn't have like 50 different desires he's longing for. He's got one. He's focused. The Spirit wants one thing, one passion the Spirit of God longs for. It's Jesus. You know what Jesus says? That Spirit is living in you if you're a Christian. So if the Spirit's living in you, but there's still the flesh that's combating, Paul's saying what you don't need is a religious leader shouting at you, yelling at you, judging you, manipulating you, monitoring your Facebook just to make sure that everything in your life is to some sort of degree of orderliness. What you really need is to trust the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God has one passion. It's Jesus. Jesus has one passion. It's his Father. And Jesus the Father and the Holy Spirit, they have one passion. It's to bring you freedom. Isn't that beautiful? It's what God wants to do in your life. So Paul's going to say, but I say to you, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. I'm actually not going to read these. You can read these on your own. But idolatry, sorcery, and he goes on through this whole laundry list. 
and these are, this is not an exhaustive list. There's a lot more sins that are done that are not on this list. This is just sort of a list to get you started, to cause you to think that the lust of the flesh is really evil and it leads to more bondage. But the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, one of the evidences that you can look at in your life to determine, to look at, to, to know whether or not you're actually walking in the freedom that God has provided through the Holy Spirit, is he's going to say, you will walk in love and joy and peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ, they've crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. For if we walk in the Spirit, let us walk let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not be, become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So what Paul is going to say is really what we need and what God has actually already done is what he's done is he's changed us. And the way that God has changed us is he's actually taken out the old funky GPS unit in our body that didn't work anyhow. And he gave us a new GPS system. That's it. He's like the new GPS system is the one that is always tracing the road back to Jesus. You say, well, what if I make a wrong turn? The Spirit will come onto the screen and say, redirecting path, go right up ahead, or else you get left, right? That was bad. But you get the idea. The Holy Spirit works in you because he changes you. It gives you a new heart that will always find its way back to God. The Spirit isn't lost. The Spirit loves Jesus. He loves the Father. He's always wanting to go back to God. So what Paul is saying, live according to, walk according to the Spirit of God that is in you. We'll say, well, wouldn't that make me an individual where I just walk away and don't have anything to do with the church? No, not at all. Because Jesus loves the church. The Spirit loves the church. Because the Spirit loves everything that Jesus loves. Who did Jesus die for? He died for the church, not churches. Jesus doesn't have a harem. He doesn't have a multiplicity of women, of wives. He's got one church. So if you're like, I'm just going to follow the Spirit. I don't need anybody. I don't even need the church. Then you're not actually following the Spirit. You're becoming independent. You're actually using the Spirit, or as you think you're using the Spirit, or using religion or the Spirit of religion to get your own and to accomplish your own means and ways. The Spirit of God will always do things that are synchronized with Jesus. Jesus will always do things that are synchronized with the Father, and their heart is always loving and full of peace and joy with one another, always esteeming one another. And here's the beauty of the gospel. God opens up that circle and says, I'm going to invite people that are ill-deserved into that circle, that love, that fellowship, that joy, That is what salvation is. Not by making us gods, but by inviting us into the fellowship with God. It's absolutely a miracle. And the way God does that is he puts a new heart in us that loves the things of God and hates the things that God despises. Okay, so C.S. Lewis, I want to write this, or I want to read a little bit of this to you. C.S. Lewis kind of defined, I think he does a good job of defining three different types of people in this world. Traditionally, people within a church have been good at trying to define Christianity or the world or people in this world in two categories. I think it's too simplistic to say, well, there's Christians and then there's everybody else that's going to be a sausage on God's barbecue. All right? There are Christians, people whom God really loves, died for, we're honored, privileged, special people. We're the ones that wear the white hats. And then there's everybody else that wears the black hat that's going to be judged by God, that will be just smoked and torched. And we get to judge them because we're on the right team and they're on the wrong team. It's arrogant. It's prideful. It's not the proper way. I think that oftentimes even reflects the heart of God. C.S. Lewis saw through this facade and defined it in, I think, better terms. Here's how C.S. Lewis would describe it. Tim Keller picked up on the same idea who had written a book called The Reason for God, and he uses this very same idea that C.S. Lewis used, and he kind of added some words to it. The first class of people that C.S. Lewis writes about, that uh, Tim Keller writes about, describes these people as irreligious. He says, these are people who live simply for their own sake, and pleasure regarding man and nature so as much raw material to be chopped up or cut up into whatever shape that might serve them so he says the first group of people they're irreligious they have no desire for god they view everything in the world as sort of their opportunity to chop it up in a way that would bless them privilege them 
promote them, push them to the forefront. Um, everything was really at their disposal. They're their own king. They're their own um, entity or deity and whatnot. And he says, these are the irreligious. The second class of people he's going to identify as the religious. This is very interesting. He says this, I think with great insight. These are those who acknowledge some other claim upon them. And he says, it's the will of God. They honestly try to pursue their own interests in no further than the claim will allow. They try to surrender to this higher claim as much as it demands, like men paying tax, but they hope, like other taxpayers, that what is left over will be enough for them to live on. He says their life is divided like a schoolboy's life into time in school and out of school. Great insight. He says there's this other group of people that are religious. They go to church. They're part of some sort of social uh, group that is church-related. Um, again, these are people that might even be part of major denominations. These might even be people that are even here right now. You've been at this church for a long time. You're part of a social gathering of people. All of your friends are Christians. You adapt their, their concepts and their ideas, their ideologies of Christianity. You recognize maybe there's a higher being, whatever he is, whatever she may be over you, and you try to submit to that as best as you possibly can. But uh, you won't go any further. You just you, you go as far as you feel that he or she or it or whatever it is demands, but you will never go further than that. And then the final type of person or final class that C.S. Lewis points out and Keller describes as the gospel-centered people, here's what the third class is. He says, these are those that say, like St. Paul, that for them to live is Christ. And he goes on and finishes with this great uh, quote. Here's what he says. He says, the will of Christ no longer limits theirs. He says, it is theirs. Love this. Here's his whole point. It's the will of Christ is not something that I put in the margin of my life and say, I want to tap into what God wants me to do so that God will help me in this area of my life. So I'll subscribe to God's desire as long as it benefits me. But what he's saying is that God's will is not just something that you subscribe to as a part of your life. He says God's will is your will. There's no distinction. Your will becomes God's will. God's will becomes your will. In other words, you live your way in such a way that says, my number one chief longing and desire in life is to somehow live out, to follow through with God's purposes, passions, and desires in my life. Here's what he finishes by saying. He says, all their time in belonging to him belongs also to them, for they are his. So this gospel-centered person, the way Keller would describe it, or this third class of person that C.S. Lewis would describe it, is really at the end of the day, this is a person that says, I know I'm not perfect. I sin all the time. I fail all the time. Yet I have one who loves me nonetheless. He cares for me. He washes me when I sin. He forgives me when I fail. He's a good God, and I'm a wretched sinner, but I'm deeply, incredibly loved by this God. There's no reason for me to be arrogant or prideful or look disparagingly upon somebody else who's not a Christian, who hasn't discovered this grace, because in reality, I'm just as wicked and evil as they are. Only difference is God's shown kindness to me, and I'm absolutely humbled by that. That's it. I love the way he describes that. Because here's the problem. The second class of people, the religious folk, oftentimes live like the first class of people where they want to be in control. They use God. They manipulate God. They manip manipulate God or manipulate Christian concepts as a means to get their own end. So one of the reasons why religion is so bad, why, personally, I hate religion. Think if you're a follower of Jesus, you too should hate religion. I think Jesus hated religion. Because at the end of the day, religion always finds people who will hijack it and use it for their own end in order to bring glory to themselves or to extend their own kingdom. We've seen this happen repeatedly throughout the history of the world. Okay? This happened in Jesus' time. It continues to happen in our time. But what happens is this religious class oftentimes looks at the class of people that are trying to follow Jesus humbly and say, they say, you're not doing it enough. You're not doing it with the right passion. You're not walking the way that we should be or the way that we're telling you to walk. We want you to do things differently because really at the end of the day, we don't want Jesus to be in control. We want to be in control. So we'll tell you what to do. We'll guilt you into giving. We'll force you into living a particular standard. We'll make you feel shamed if you don't show up to the prayer meetings. And if you're not going out sharing your faith, telling people about Jesus, it's okay, we'll shun you. 
and will make you feel really bad because you are really bad. It's manipulating religion to somehow control people. So this group of people is the type of people that were making their way into this Galatian region, that were coming into the church and manipulating the people whom Paul loved, Jesus loved. Well, Paul was trying to say, listen, you're walking away from Jesus. You're not walking into deeper spirituality. You're walking into bondage. You're not getting closer to God. You're actually getting farther away from God into a place of great spiritual depravity. You're not advancing. You're actually pulling away. That's Paul's great concern. And the issue really that goes on here is they were on the brink of becoming religious elitists. Religious elitism is an issue in the church. It's this idea that basically says we worship the proper way. Everybody else doesn't worship properly. We have our little groups. We conduct our meetings in the way that's in accordance with Scripture. Everybody else doesn't. We preach the gospel clearly. Everybody else not so much. We baptize properly, everybody else incorrectly. We pray the proper way because we have a particular method by which we do it. Everybody else doesn't pray the way that we do. We have become religious elitists. And what I want for you to understand is this was the issue that was going on in Paul's day in the Galatian church where Paul's saying, listen, yes, falling prey to sin is an issue, it's definitely an issue because whenever somebody's free, they can always abuse that freedom. But what you don't need to ensure that your freedom is not abused is some religious leader or a religious zealot over you telling you what to do, monitoring your every step in your life. What you really need is to trust and rely upon the spirit of God that God has given to you. That's what you need. Let me give you an example. Can you imagine being in a relationship, say a marriage relationship that's been married for a year, and the husband is very controlling, micromanaging. He's the type of guy that's just like, look, I'm very concerned that you would cheat on me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up some parameters to make sure that you don't cheat on me. I have a transponder in your purse. I'm not going to tell you where it's at. I have actually hired private investigators to watch you every step. Your car is bugged. Uh, your cell phone is being traced everywhere you go. Um, I monitor and watch every single text you send out, every single text that comes in. I want to micromanage, watch, and limit everything you do because I want to make sure that you're not going to cheat on me. And if they say, you know, are you going to cheat on me? And the response is obviously going to be, no, because I don't want to get caught. But the reality is, does that change a person's heart? Does that actually limit sin? Because what about the heart? In fact, I would say, to some degree, the lady, for example, is probably even more so desirous of bailing out of that relationship and finding another guy. Because she's in a relationship with an oppressor. She's not free. There's no love. There's no joy. A better way to look at it be like, look, I love you so much. You love me so much. We covenanted it with each other. And every single day, I'm going to show you my affection for you, my love for you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. And what you're doing is you're actually winning that person through love. Love is the greatest power. And it's a great cliche that people love to throw out and sing songs about. But the reality is before it's a cliche and a song, lyric, it's a power that God brings us into. And that's what Paul is saying is that don't forget that Jesus came to you. He changed you. He loves you. He gave you a new power to, ch to change the way that you live by giving you a new heart. You have new desires that control you, new passions inside of you that lead you to follow after God. Paul's saying live according to that new desire, that new passion. So what I want to do right now is I want to wrap this up. And I want to talk about different ways in which we can try to avoid the sense of religious elitism. Because it is something that's very real. And let me say this as well. It's something that every single one of us at the end of the day are prone to. All of us are prone towards religion. It is, let me say this, the default mode of our heart. Some of us are religious with a longer list of rules. Some of us have one rule. That one rule on our short list is do everything, or don't do anything that's on the list of the deeply religious people have a long list. I'll put it this way. 
Sometimes older people, older generational people who've come from a more traditional church have a tendency to have a long list. The long list is you can't listen to certain types of music, you've got to dress a certain way, you shouldn't get a tattoo, you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't smoke. Where the younger generation, basically in a lot of ways, our church, I know because I talk to you all the time, you almost have the opposite attitude, but it is also religious. And it's a tendency that says, you know what? I will do everything that the older generation didn't do. They said don't get tattoos. I'll get eight. They said don't drink. I'll drink. I'll drink. They said don't smoke. I'll smoke a pack a day. All right? I will do everything the older generation said not to do. That's also religious. It's very religious because it leads to the same bondage. You're not free because you're actually living constrained, oppressed by the rules of an older generation. The older generation is not free because you're oppressed by this laundry list of rules. I'm telling you, Jesus wants to set you free by changing your heart. So here's some ways to identify religious elitism in our hearts that we are all prone to fall prey to. The first of which is pride. The first of which is pride. These are the people that would say, we're the good guys, they're the bad ones. We believe that the Bible is perfect and so is our interpretation and our understanding of it. They're the ones that say, we have the solutions, everybody out there has the problem. Let me say this, the Bible, we believe, is perfect. But the interpreters of the Bible are not perfect, all right? We believe the Bible's perfect, but those who teach it aren't, all right? It's not because they don't love God. The reason why Bible teachers don't teach the Bible accurately, perfectly, every single time in an inerrant fashion is not because they don't love God. It's because simply they're not God. All right? So even when you listen to me, all right, don't take everything that I say. At faith. You got to back it up with God's word. You always have to do that with any teacher. The reality is what can oftentimes happen is people find themselves in a place where they look at a particular systematic theology, a particular teacher, a particular style, and they say, this way is always right, always correct. We should never bend from it. And everybody who does things in a different way that's not lined up with this, we will criticize, we will judge. The Bible's going to tell us that's pride. It's destructive. It's part of this sense of religious elitism. Paul's going to say in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, he says, let it, 26, let us not become conceited. Why? Because what had happened is these people became religious and arrogant and prideful. What was happening was those who got circumcised were looking at those who didn't get circumcised, and they were prideful. We were walking with God. We even got the marks to prove it. Look at what we do. Look at what we did. Look at our efforts. Look at how zealous we are. What I'm trying to tell you is it's very possible to be zealous, but to completely wrong in the direction of your zeal. Pride. It's one of the marks of religious elitism. Second thing is hypocriticalness. Hypocriticalness. Galatians is going to say in verse, chapter 6, verses 12, he says, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. He says, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, for they desire to have you circumcised so that they might boast in your flesh. He's saying, the religious leaders that you guys are succumbing to, giving yourself to, these guys, as soon as they go behind closed doors, they laugh at you. They're like, how many people did you circumcise today? I circumcised Hey, Kidding, I got 10. Can you believe those idiots? They got circumcised. They actually let us touch them in their privates and cut off. Can you believe that? And they're boasting. He's like, they're boasting about this. See, this is the irony of religion. Religion boasts in things like cutting someone else's foreskin. All right? That's Paul's point. He's like, it doesn't make any sense. When people are so bound by religion... There is a tendency to somehow fall prey to the sins. And Paul's saying, even those that are urging you to keep the law, he's like, they're not even keeping the law. They're hypocritical. They're hypocritical. The third thing is they become unloving. They become unloving. Look, the reality is, is oftentimes these people can sometimes mistreat people. They judge people. They criticize others. 
They can walk into a building and they can see lots of amazing things happen. They can look at people's eyes being changed, transformed from a distance. But do they ever stop and just rejoice in the fact that people saved? I mean, this is an amazing story, oftentimes throughout Jesus' ministry, one of which is these group of guys actually tear off the roof of a house and they let a paralytic guy down in front of Jesus. And the people that are sitting in the front row are all the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders. And when this guy ends up getting healed, Jesus says, I forgive you of your sin, and also I'm going to heal you from your paralyzed state. The guy gets up, takes up his bed, and walks out of this crowded room. You would think everybody's throwing a party and celebrating, because here's this guy who has not walked in many, many years. He's actually healed, changed, transformed, sins are forgiven, washed, and all the religious people are freaking out. They're like, are you kidding me? Did you hear what Jesus said? He forgave them of their sins. Who is Jesus? How can he say that? How can he do that? His methodology was all off. What is he doing? They could not enter into the joy, the celebration of what Jesus had just done because there's no love in their heart. There's no love in their heart. People who become religiously elite, there's no love that guides them. See, because religion can't create love. It can't. It can superimpose loving attitudes. In other words, you can try to make yourself loving. Put a smile on your face. Give five bucks to the homeless dude on the side of the road. Buy a burrito. You can help an old lady cross the street. You can do all sorts of nice things that look loving. But are you really a loving person? That's the issue. Religious elitism leads to an unloving state. Fourth thing is joylessness. And this is the idea that basically here there's a group of people that are found themselves in this religious elitism. And they're basically become people that are defined by what they're against. They're defined by conspiracies of all these things that they have against all these other groups of people, all these other religious sects, the way people are doing things, the way people aren't doing things. And they're just constantly trying to find some sort of problems in everything. They're not full of joy. These are the type of people that at some point, if they ever have kids, when their kids raise up because, or grow up because the family is so full of unlovingness, no joy, joylessness. These kids grow up at some point and they want to sin really bad because to them, sin at least looks semi-joyful, at least semi-joyful. And so because Christianity that has been espoused within the home is so joyless, so conspiratorial, so constantly just full of critique, full of critique, that they end up leaving and not wanting to have any joy. The reality, or joy, find joy someplace else. Joylessness is definitely a characteristic of religious elitism. The fifth thing, here's a big word, because we like to say big words here at Calvary Slow, is methodological rigidity. All right, it's a big word, I know, you're welcome. Methodological means living according to a particular method and rigidity is just being rigid, super rigid in particular thing. What you need to understand is that the Bible is going to basically say that there are principles and there are methods. Principles are timeless, changeless, and universal, meaning throughout all time, they're always the same. God will always be the same. He will never change. God is loving. That's a constant. He will always be loving. That will never change. Principles or methods, I should say, will change. Methods are basically derived from some of the principles. For example, God's going to say, worship me throughout the Bible. We know that we're to worship God. But what the Bible doesn't do, it doesn't give you an explicit, exhaustive way by which you should worship. It doesn't say when you should worship. Should it be before the you know, preaching? Should it be in song? Should it be with instruments? Should it be without instruments? Should you have drums? Does it have to be an organ? Should it be hymns? Should it only be the Psalms? It doesn't tell us those types of things. So what we're left with are methods to try to figure out how to implement worship. Because we just want to worship. The Bible says worship. So we want to figure out how to worship. So we believe, based upon culture and different other variables, we can basically shape the principle of worship into various changing methods. Methods, I would say, should change. They should change based upon culture. In other words, if you export Calvary Slow to somewhere in China, it probably won't work very well. It just won't. The type of methods which we typically do here may not work well there, may not be accepted there. If you get a worship leader wearing skinny jeans up there and leading people, it's probably not going to work too well. All right? The point that I would make is this. We need to learn to recognize that methods need to change. The problem is that oftentimes 
groups can take a look at certain methods and say, these methods are unchanging. And they move them to the same level as principles. So what ends up happening is you have these methods that say, and people who follow these methods that say, we can't change the methods. We can't change the order of service. We can't change the day in which we worship on. We can't change the style of music. We can't sell the organ. We can't get rid of the guitars. We can't stop using drums. We can't, we can't do these things because if we do that, these are sacred, and therefore we will somehow lose the pizzazz, the magic, the anointing, however you want to define it. And what I'm saying is that that becomes, the method becomes a form of idolatry. A form of idolatry. When you begin to tamper with the method, you say, you know what, we're going to change things up a little bit different here. People flip out. I mean, churches literally split over this stuff. We're going to get rid of the carpet. Are you kidding me? We can't get rid of the carpet. The carpet's sacred. Holy man... He knew a holy man, like, was here. He sat on his carpet, sacred stuff. Methods need to change, but methods can come, become idolatrous, where you begin to worship those things. I talked to a guy this past week through email, basically communicated to me that he said he refused to have anything to do, ministry-wise, with people that weren't part of the same little group. It's a methodological vision and group of doing ministry. He said, I, I can't. There's no way I can do that. I just can't. I look at that and I just think it's religious elitism. It's religious elitism. This says, I refuse to change because my method has become an idol that I stroke, I love, I protect at all costs because it means everything. What I'm trying to say is that's where religious elitism oftentimes leads to. The sixth thing, move through this very quickly, is power. People become very powerful. The reality is, oftentimes the people that are religiously elite and lead, they oftentimes seem very bold. They're very confident. They memorize a lot of scriptures. So if you were to sit down with them, they can quote verses back to you nonstop. You're like, this person must know a lot. He studies the word of God a lot. So therefore, he must know what he's talking about. And so I don't know that much. And so therefore, he must be right. He did the study. He read a book. He went to Bible college. He went to seminary. He studied under some sort of anointed person. So they must be right. Let's just give them the authority and the power. And that was the problem with the Galatian church. They gave the power to these people, and these people then abused the power and brought them back under some sort of form of religious legalism and religious elitism. You need to understand that just because somebody's bold, confident, or zealous does not make them right. Paul the Apostle, prior to him coming to know Jesus, was very bold, very confident, and very zealous, but zealous for all the things that were not on the heart of God, on the mind of God. Seventh one, final one is this, is religious elitism can also oftentimes as well be defined by insecurity. I've oftentimes discovered that the most religiously elite type people are actually very, very insecure. Very insecure. They don't know who they are. They don't know what their identity is. They have not been able to find their identity in Christ, in Jesus. And because they don't know their identities in Christ, I think sometimes these are well-meaning people. They come in contact with a particular method or a tribe or a denomination or a group of uh, distinctives and say, this is the way that we need to do church. This is the way that we need to live. And because they make their identity attached to that particular thing, they can't even envision a world without them, in, with them being apart from that thing. So therefore, they're very, very insecure. These types of insecurities lead to one or two types of responses. The first is militancy. These people oftentimes are the ones that fight the hardest. This is Paul the Apostle. This is why Paul was actually willing to break God's law, literally, to kill people. Because Paul was very concerned that this system of Judaism in the first century was going to be threatened. Paul's whole identity, his whole life... Everything that he did in his life up until that point of being a rabbi in Judaism, everything was defined and sculpted in his identity with this religious system. So you take the religious system away, what is Paul left with? Nothing. So what Paul does is he becomes very militant to say, I will fight. Let me just say this. If you've ever been around religious people, this is why religious people will fight. This is why people, even in terms of fundamental circles, like fundamentalist Islam, are willing to strap a bomb to their body to die for the cause. Their whole identity is wrapped up in this thing. And I've seen it in Christian circles as well. 
people who are willing to fight and do anything they can for methods, religious elitism is what I'm trying to say. Is there something within the gospel that's worthwhile dying for? Absolutely. Are there convictions that we should have strong convictions over? Absolutely. Should we be willing to die for these things? Certainly. But there's other things that are non-essential issues that we shouldn't necessarily have to fight over every simple, tedious, doctrinal issue. Religious elitists do, though. Religious elitists oftentimes do so because they're very insecure. That's why they fight. Or the flip side of this is not militancy, it's despair. These are the people that have been in these circles, in these systems. They've not lived up to the standards. They've not been to the prayer meetings. They haven't been faithful in preaching the gospel. They don't feel what everybody else feels. The room is filled with people speaking in tongues. They don't feel it. They don't want to speak in tongues. They don't feel like speaking in tongues. They feel like they can't speak in tongues. Everybody else raises their hands during worship, singing times. They don't feel it. They don't have this emotional experience. Everybody else reads their Bible and talks about these amazing experiences. They haven't read their Bible. They read their Bible and they get confused. They begin to look at their life in the system, even though much of the system is built on good things. Remember, everything the religious leaders in Galatians the Galatians were bringing up were biblical things. Circumcision, biblical. It's not that they were just making up stuff on the fly. I mean, like, you know what? Let's just, you know, make up some crazy rules for you to follow by. They're saying everything that we believe is in the Bible. Every religious elitist always takes things from the Bible, but they make them the main thing. And people who are in those systems who don't live according to those things, they feel full of despair. Calvary Slow, what I want to say to you today is the good news is that Jesus came to set you free. He came to set you free. He came to do this by changing your heart, changing who you are, giving you new passions, new longings, new desires. That yes, sin is a very real vice you need to guard yourself out for, but so is religious fundamental traditionalism also. And the way to guard against those things is to not to find somebody to submit yourself to, but to go to Jesus who made you first and redeemed you second and third, filled you with the Spirit by giving you a new heart. Go to him. That's the good news that we have. Let me finish with this. What I'm trying to say is if you're here today and you've been oppressed and destroyed and crushed by sin, or if you're here today and you've been oppressed and crushed by religious elitism, you've been crushed by that, I want you to see the beauty of what Jesus did for you, that Jesus himself knows exactly what you've gone through. How, first and foremost, with regard to sin, it's not surprising that Jesus bore upon himself a crown of thorns. The thorns were given as a sign of the curse. Jesus literally subjected him to himself to all that sin would ultimately do. It led to death. Sin bore death in Jesus. He subjected himself to a horrible, physical, destructive death. But then also, Jesus knew exactly the destructive nature of religious elitism. I was thinking about this when I was studying this, and it absolutely blew my mind. You know what Jesus did? The night when he was betrayed, he literally surrendered himself to the best that religious people can do. He says, I give myself over to you. Do with me all that your religion would do. The, all the religion could do, mounted in judgment and crushing weight upon your Savior, Jesus, he did that for you. He did that because he knows the crushing weight that religious, bring, religious systems bring upon a person's soul. And he did that as a way to say that he knows the type of oppression, the pain that sin brings upon a soul. I urge you, run to Jesus. Run to him. He knows what you're going through. He wants to set you free. Walk in that freedom. We're going to have... Chris, come on up, and Trav, we're going to sing some worship, and Corey, we're going to sing some worship. But before we do, what I want you to, I want to ask you guys, if you're here today, and you have kind of been a part of a system, a religiously oppressive system, no matter what it is, maybe it was a cult, maybe it was a Christian group of people that call themselves Christians, maybe they are Christians, but maybe they abused the power that they had in a way that brought oppression 
upon your soul and weighed upon your soul, and it left you feeling in despair. If you've been a part of that system and you want God to just meet you here and set you free and deliver you and bring you into freedom, that's you. All I want you to do is just stand. Just stand up where you're at. That's all I want you to do. Just stand. I want to pray for you in a second here. Anybody here? You just feel like you've been in some sort of religious system. It wasn't Jesus. It wasn't Jesus crushing. It was a religious system. Maybe it was even well-intentioned people, people that had your best, or they thought they had, you thought they had their, your interest in mind, but they didn't. They had their interest in mind. They went behind closed doors and laughed and said, you know, we got a bunch more people today. They did what we told them to do. Aren't we powerful? And at some point, you found out about the charade, and you're crushed. And you want to run into Jesus' arms today, just sense his freedom. If that's you, anybody, just stand it all. Been crushed by religion, by religious elitism. If you're here and maybe you've been crushed by the weight of sin, you felt the weight of sin upon your shoulders, it's crushed you, it's destroyed you, and you want to know God's freedom that sets you free from that sin. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a feeling of shame that you have inside because of some sort of sin. You want God to set you free. I want you to stand up right where you're at. Anybody else? You, you, you hear, and you, maybe you're not a Christian. You want to stand. If you are a Christian, you've just slipped into some sin. And you've, you've felt this addiction, this constant cycle. You've been in this cul-de-sac, just going around and around. You want to break the cycle. You know you're not free, but you want to be free. That's what we're asking specifically. It's just for God to set you free. Just stand up right where you're at. Cool. I know there's more of you probably. Go ahead. Stand. It's okay. There's no judgment here. I mean, it's, gosh, we're, we've all been a part of this cul-de-sac. We've all been there. <laughs> this is just not us saying, like, look, I've arrived, and we've arrived, and we want to bring you into our arrival. It's just saying we're all on the same journey, but some of us have walked into that grace, and we want to extend that grace and pray for that measure of grace to be given to you. Anybody else? So what I want to do is, is I want to have the rest of you guys that are sitting down or around these people, I want you guys to go lay hands on someone that you see standing. Um, so go find someone right now. I want you to pray over them. So just find somebody. Don't, don't, make sure that nobody's, there's some people in the back. Just make sure that nobody's standing. And if you're standing and, and people sit up around you, they don't see you, just maybe raise your hand. And um, I want to give you guys a, a minute. And I want you guys to just pray over these people right now, okay? So in your little groups, just pray over these people right now. Pray that God would set them free. Pray that God would just bring them to Jesus who absolutely loves them. Religion doesn't love them. Sin, who's led by Satan, doesn't love them. Jesus loves them. Pray that God would bring them to, to see Jesus, the love of Jesus that sets them free. Pray that for them right now. Go ahead and pray. Take a minute. Just go ahead and pray over them. And then I'm going to finish up. And then we'll worship. God, you can just pray out loud over them. Make sure they can hear you. Jesus, we thank you for the freedom that you have it's, it's intended in your heart to bring. It's what you desire to bring us to. That sin, um, it oppresses us. It crushes us. The weight of it, God, is... It's, it's always more than we ever bargained for. We, we never engage in sin assuming that it would lead to the destruction that it, it does. We never do. But God, religion is the same thing. It's just the sanitized version of sin. It's the clean side of it. And God, religion crushes us too. Underneath the weight of rules and do's and don'ts and religion restrictions and and yet Jesus we thank you that you not only bore our sin but you also lived according to the rules of God perfectly the law of God you fulfilled perfectly you are a perfect righteous sin bearer and you do that because you love us you want us to be free you created us so that we would flourish in you to freedom God, I pray today that you would set people free. Help them to see that freedom is not just an idea, it's a person. 
It's you, Jesus. Freedom is found in you. So God, I pray that you would just draw people to yourself here all throughout this room. Let it continue to happen, God, that the people that have been changed by you as we leave this room would even go forth wanting to seek and find people that are oppressed under sin, under religion, under any other type of addiction or substance or regulation or concept or ideology or philosophy that crushes and oppresses the soul. God, I pray that you would help them to lead them to Jesus who sets people free, who washes the shame of our sin and our guilt and liberates us. We thank you, Jesus. We celebrate you. We celebrate you. We sing of you. You're a good God. That's why we love you, Jesus. That's why we're thankful to be called your own. So God, send us out here by your strength and your power. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Love you guys. And uh, you guys have a great day. Maybe say hi to someone you've never met. See ya.